Thanks for downloading show 53 of the C-Suite podcast, which is being produced in partnership with A Blueprint for Better Business as part of their 10 Steps to Fulfillment at Work series. And the aim of today's show is to help our listeners seek inspiration for your businesses by stepping out of your comfort zones and visiting places unrelated to your line of work, be that an art gallery or a museum or through music or literature or simply by taking a walk in the park. My name is Russell Goldsmith and I've got a great lineup of guests to uh, chat to here at the Tate Modern where we're recording the show. Uh, we're sat in the east room of their boiler house which has the most amazing views over the uh, Thames here in London but uh, more about that later. Firstly I'd like to introduce our four panel members who are Charles Wookie, CEO of A Blueprint for Better Business, Joe Alexander, a Blueprint's on-purpose associate and former geologist at BP, Norman Pickavance, another senior advisor to Blueprint but Norman is also a published author and has a very background of senior experience in major corporations and uh, consultancies. And finally, Ruth Dobson, who is an independent consultant and an associate partner at ELP Network. And again, she works a lot in the area of connecting businesses with purpose. So uh, welcome to all of you and uh, thanks for giving up your time to chat with us today. Charles, let's come to you first because it probably makes sense to start with a bit of background to a blueprint for better business. Russell, thank you very much. Um, So Blueprint is a charity that was set up uh, in 2014 when a bunch of business leaders and society leaders got together really concerned about the breakdown of trust after the financial crisis and concerned that something needed to be changed in the ecosystem that needed to bring business and society together in a new way. And really, in one line, I would say that what Blueprint is about is putting people rather than profit at the heart of business. Uh, It's a desire to get away from a narrow view of business success, which has simply been about maximising shareholder value, and a narrow view of people, which which doesn't really get to the heart of what really motivates us at work and the idea that we seek, just as human beings, fulfilment in the quality of relationships we have and in meaning through work. And it's not just about making money. Profit is important, but it's not the whole point. And Blueprint is there to try and help with others to promote a movement which is really powerful uh, and vitally needed at this point in our society's history. And so how do you go about actually working with all all the businesses? Well, the group that have have got together... um, Uh, put together five principles of a purpose-driven business and a framework to think about uh, relationships within organisations that help them to put people at the centre. And we've been working with some large companies, uh, about 18 of the FTSE 100 now, who are looking at these principles and finding ways of embedding them within their practice. And we bring together senior business leaders, we put on courses, we help uh, coordinate some research around all of this to try and give people confidence that this way of thinking aligns with long-term business success and also helps to reconnect business and society in a deep way. And in doing that, we work with a number of consultants, a number of senior advisors who uh, work with companies uh, in implementing some of the tools that we, we've put forward. Okay, well, that, that leads me uh, nicely on to introducing our, our other guests into the show. So, uh, Joe, let's uh, bring you into the chat at, at this point. Um, how does a geologist of 13-plus years end up advising businesses about having a purpose? Thanks, Russ. Uh, I realise those two things don't naturally go together very easily, um, but I think it's because... My experience of working at BP for 11 years, a really big oil and gas company, has had quite a profound effect on me. Um, So I joined BP for some uh, purposeful reasons, and I think I left BP because I felt they had gone away. Um, And so I suppose I have quite a a close relationship with this idea of purpose. So I joined BP uh, because uh, Lord Brown at the time was CEO, and he was trying to transform the business um, into 
rather than a kind of purely oil and gas business into an energy business uh, where alternative energy was an important part. So I felt, felt that was a mission I could get behind. Um, and then, you know, over the 11 years that I was there, some things happened and that, that mission changed. Um, and it really made me question why I was still there. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's quite normal as well for geologists to really be quite um, worried about their purpose. We're quite a conflicted bunch of people. And now you're working with these guys here? At, yeah, at it's wonderful. Yeah, I'm so happy that I've landed at Blueprint because it gives me the chance to, to think about business in a really uh, important and interesting way. So get away from the technical aspects and think about the kind of people aspects Excellent. a lot more. Very good. Uh, Norman, let's, let's come to you. Um, as, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you've worked uh, a number of large-scale corporates and helped develop Blueprint's framework. But what I particularly like, when I was doing my research before, before this uh, podcast, I looked at your LinkedIn profile, um, and you describe yourself as an advisor and author, but also as an activist too. Um, so you, you're clearly quite passionate about the need for businesses to have a role in uh, society and, in, and ensuring employees are fulfilled at their work. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, the role that business plays in society these days is so all-encompassing that it's difficult for, in my view, for organisations to sort of separate themselves from the world around them. In fact, my strong view is that there's a deep need for businesses to reconnect with society and to see that as a whole. Um, so, for example, um, work on modern slavery. Um, there are more slaves today than there were back in the uh, 1800s. Um, and that's something that business can really strongly influence. Now, if you think that that's an issue, what do you personally do about it? And I think that's where the sense of becoming active um, to stand up for the things that you believe in and to try to do something about that. Wow. Okay, well, we'll come on to some more, more of that um, in, in a little while. Um, Ruth, I want to get you involved um, in the show too. Um, I know your journey to working with uh, Blueprint leads us nicely into actually the main theme of this podcast in terms of finding inspiration from new places. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and your recent uh, trips that you've been on? Yeah, sure. Um, so I uh, am a chartered accountant um, and I spent 16 years of my career with um, PwC and nine of those years were in China. And um, what I was doing there was helping companies invest into China. So um, multinationals that wanted to set up business in China through a joint venture or um, by buying out a Chinese company. And I was there from 2001 to 2010. Um, and the, the, the growth in China's economy during that period was absolutely phenomenal. Um, and the number of people that have um, come out of poverty... Um, and into a much better economic situation in those years, but also um, basically since it, the, the change in the open, opening of the market, I guess, in China uh, is unprecedented in history. So I, w I, was, I witnessed that and I was a part of that. Um, what I really noticed while I was there was that, um, and, and this is, you know, everyone who knows anything about China's development knows this, the impact on the environment was... Um, devastating, I suppose, uh, in terms of um, pollution to water, in terms of air pollution and so on. But also um, there's huge changes in society. 
many of which were very problematic. So there's a whole issue of left-behind children where their parents have gone to cities to work and the grandparents are left behind looking after kids and all sorts of other things. Um, and I became very aware of this as I was working in China and a, a whole bunch of other things happened to me personally. I was very much caught up in the sort of corporate world of traveling all the time, working incredibly long hours, not really paying attention to my health, uh, I, I definitely wouldn't say that people were at the centre of what we were doing, although PwC is a people-centred organisation. Um, it, it, it wasn't really embracing the kind of things that Blueprint are talking about now. So I got to a point um, in my career where I've been in China nine years and I decided it's time now to leave. And in doing that, I really took time out to assess what it is that I wanted to do. And I think being in China in itself. I mean, I went to China because I'd gone there on holiday and I basically fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the color and the uh, energy and the excitement of the people. And by the time I left, I'd kind of fallen out of love with it. <laughs> um, but I, I, I decided to take a year out. And um, so I went to Africa and I, I basically picked up a book um, that mentioned a, an idea of cycling across the length of Africa. And I, I knew that I wanted to go to Africa. I'd been there in my teens, basically, and never really been back. And I picked up this book and found this idea of a cycling trip from Cairo to Cape Town. And I knew in my gut that I wanted to do that. And I wasn't a cyclist. Um, I just thought, right, I'm going to do it. And everyone thought I was kind of crazy. But I uh, found a bike, sorted everything out, um, and uh, went and, and did it. And uh, it was probably the best thing I've ever done in my life. And um, yeah, so. And, and on the topic of, of what we're talking about, in terms of coming back feeling inspired from, from experiencing yeah. that different culture and different place. It was really interesting because I think, I sort of thought, right, I'm going to go and take this big trip and I'm going to really think through my life while I'm on the bike. And actually what happened was that consciously I didn't really think at all. Mostly I was thinking, when can I stop? Where's the water? Where's lunch? Um, you know, this is a really terrible hill. I'm going to die. <laughs> but what was happening was that subconsciously there was a huge amount of thinking going on. And um, every day I was on a bike for up to 10 hours a day, just taking in sights and sounds and people and scenery and... Um, I get a great deal of inspiration from nature and just being in big open spaces and uh, there's plenty of that in Africa. And so, honestly, when I got back initially, I was, I was really low because if you do something like that, you can get a bit of a, a dip afterwards. But what I found was that it really revitalised me subsequently and gave me a lot of clarity on thinking of what I wanted to do. Yeah. And any other you know, trips that have uh, inspired you and in, in your thinking? Well, something that Ruth said made me uh, think of the importance of emptying your head sometimes. Mm. So, you know, sometimes... So when I left BP, uh, I had this burst of creativity. So instead of kind of going to a place, it was almost like I, I decided to change what I was doing and become kind of crafty and creative. I learned how to make stained glass windows, silversmithing, made jewellery, which I still do started singing playing the flute again and none of this was intentional I didn't think I'm going to leave work and have a year being creative it just felt completely natural 
And I enjoyed not thinking that much, actually. And I enjoyed just doing things with my hands and thinking about practicalities, like how am I going to solder this thing to this thing? Um, there was something very therapeutic about that. Oh, man. I think one of the uh, reflections of just listening to both of you talk about your experiences is the degree to which modern business doesn't allow time for people to have any other dimension to their lives. I, I, I think people outside of the corporate bubble um, don't really understand how much it, it consumes you. Um, it demands all of your thoughts, all of your time, and will continue to take from that, despite the wonderful people policies that organisations may have. The reality is, um, the expectation on people is that you are there, you're on 24-7, mm. um, and you're giving your all. One of the challenges, I think, with that is that people um, become cut off from the world around them and start to develop a very narrow view of what, um, what's important. Um, and sometimes that being cut off, you know, is the extent of family and friends, um, that people become obsessed with the work because they have to, to survive in those environments. Um, I think one of the reasons that uh, we're here today at uh, the Tate Modern is sometimes art or travel um, can get you to step outside of that bubble. Um, and I, I, uh, when I was preparing for, for this session, I was quite interested in a word that um, Dennis Healy coined uh, to talk about his interests outside of politics and referred to hinterland um, and the need for um, as broad and deeper hinterland as possible because otherwise what is it that you're bringing to your work? Mm. What other perspective and balance is there? And I'm afraid that today so many um, senior executives within organizations really don't have much of a hinterland to the detriment of their lives, but also to the way in which they lead their organizations. That reminds me of uh, emails that I used to find very funny at work. So sometimes if someone moved into a new role, you'd have a, a new senior leader. And so they'd send around an email saying, John, whoever has uh, you know an MBA from X and has led this organisation, blah. And then at the end, it will say, you know, John has wife and children, and then we'll say something about his hobbies. And it was always usually like he likes to eat and walk, or something really obvious that we all have to do to survive. And I was always struck by the limited nature of people's. Um, what they were able to explore outside work um, and those moments always really clarified that for me and I found it very sad mm. it wasn't always the case no, but I, you have to be I, very strong to create the space to, to, to broaden what you do yeah so um, when I went through this process um, of wanting to leave PwC one of the things that I did before I got to that stage was I recognised that um, I wasn't really burnt out but I was approaching it and mm. I had quite a lot of health issues and I deliberately took time out to um, start to exercise and I started volunteering with a charity um, because I was looking around and thinking there's all this stuff going on in Chinese society and I'm kind of helping to um, create this problem um, and I need to get outside of my door and go and get involved with some of the stuff that's going on um, on the ground in reality. So I started volunteering, 
volunteering with a, an organisation that helps economic migrants coming into um, Chinese cities. Um, but it, it, it took a real effort on my part to say, I'm going to put boundaries around my time, uh, I'm going to prioritise other things outside of this. And that's something that I practice actively now in the way that I in the way that I live and I've been involved in a couple of um, leadership development um, programs recently where the the idea is to take senior executives and um, get them outside of their comfort zone so um, one of them involved a trip to Kenya and a couple of others just involved a lot of different speakers kind of coming in and sharing and it was kind of amazing actually to see how many people are, are doing exactly what Norman described which is that they're just so engrossed in what they're doing and that's what the corporate world sort of pushes us towards and then it's almost like taking blinkers off and saying wow look at all this other yeah. stuff that's going on and and I, one of the things that Norman said um, earlier that I was kind of nodding along to was that um, you know business is fundamentally connected with society and we seem to have forgotten that and I think of business as being kind of it touches all kinds of places and um there's a responsibility to think about what, how, how that, you know, how we're touching um, society yeah. when we're working in business. Ruth, you just uh, touched on taking execs out of their comfort zone. Um, we've mentioned we're recording here at the Tate Modern. Um, we're in their East Room, which is on level six of their boiler house. And so we're enjoying amazing views over the Thames and in particular uh, Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, another place uh, worth visiting for inspiration. Um, and, and in fact, one that's ridiculously cheap. Uh, it's just five pounds to stand in the yard there, which is something I did a few weeks ago when I went and saw Twelfth Night. But before we set up to uh, record this show, I set uh, my guests a task, uh, which was to wander around the various exhibitions here at the Tate Modern, which I should also add is free to visit. Their aim was to come to this podcast with at least one piece of art that they've seen this morning that has inspired them in some way um, and how they could then take that back to their business or businesses that they advise. Um, So when we come back after this quick break, we'll find out exactly what they've uh, found to talk about. It's harder than ever to keep track of everything being said in news and social media. It's even more difficult to gain actionable insights that will improve your reputation and results. Karma provides global media intelligence services to help you communicate more effectively. From automated media monitoring to expertly crafted PR measurement reports, Karma delivers what matters. For more information or to schedule a free consultation, please visit karma.com. That's C-A-R-M-A dot com. Welcome back to the C-Suite podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, and my guests from A Blueprint for Better Business. So before the break, I said I'd challenge my guests to uh, come to this uh, podcast recording with something that's inspired them from here at the Tate Modern. Uh, Joe, let's come to you first. Uh, well, there, was, there are a couple of things that really struck me, but I thought I'd maybe talk about um, the Workers' Maypole, okay. is what it was called, by Andrea Bowers. Um, so she's recreated something that was made... I think, in the late 1890s, I think. Might have to check my facts. (laughs) Um, And so it basically depicts um, people dancing around a maypole, uh, flying banners, and they all have words on the banners that say things like dignity or um, free time for everyone, um, uh, fair pay, solidarity. It has all these phrases on it that really resonate with what we talk about in Blueprint. Um, and she's drawn it uh, on cardboard with black pen uh, to make it look like some of the placards that are held at protests like we've had 
recently, and I've attended in London. <laughs> so bring something that's quite old uh, into the modern day makes it relevant, makes you realize that some of the issues that we're facing today in kind of equality and workers' rights uh, have been around for a long time. Um, so it's not really anything new. And your, uh, your second example? The second example was um, to do with uh, tower blocks. So there were some photos of tower blocks uh, which were being demolished in the mid-1990s. Right. And that obviously resonated with the recent experience we've had in Grenfell Tower. Of course, yeah. So it's just strange to see how, how that's so relevant today um, and how those tower blocks represent more than just loads of concrete. They represent kind of inequality and difficult living conditions and, and a society that, you know, isn't very natural somehow. Yeah. Charles, you, you were going to add something? Funny enough, the tower blocks... Um, exhibition was also the one that really struck me there was a opposite the pictures that joe's just been talking about there was a sculpture of um which actually i thought was off grenfell tower actually it's 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 a, it's uh, it's just in gray but it's a large empty windowless um icon uh, and in fact it represents a tower block that was built in lebanon in beirut in 1970s that was never completed uh, they've tried to knock it down, but it was too well built to knock down, and it was only ever used as a place where snipers would shoot people during the Civil War in the Lebanon. So it's a kind of very bleak image in a way, but, I mean, what really struck me about it was the resonance with uh, Grenfell Tower, obviously, with our, our recent experience of that, which, and that place has become such an iconic sign for our society, I think. Um, but also a reminder of how things can be used and misused. There's a tower block which has one purpose and it ends up being used for something completely different. And I suppose the, re the relevance back to our work really is, is that business as, a, as an entity is neutral. Um, it's what we do with businesses and with organisations for good or for ill. Uh, and they can be used either way. Um, and the, it seems to me that there's something very open about the possibilities that we face now in society and what we can create through institutions and through thinking about the connections of society. And that's just a very sharp negative image of a kind of real dystopian vision of a society where something is being profoundly misused. But yet yeah, it also reminds us of the possibilities that are there of doing the opposite. Norman. One of the things that attracted me to the work with the blueprint was the way in which the, uh, the framework puts the dignity of the human person at the heart of all of the thinking. And one of the exhibitions here at the Tate Modern is uh, the Giacometti uh, exhibition. And what's interesting about uh, Giacometti's work, um, it's uh, for those who haven't had the chance to see it, um, it's the very tall, very thin, uh, elongated figures. And when Giacometti was doing um, that work, um, what he was really trying to do was to, to get to the essence of what it meant to be human. Um, the sort of very stripped back um, understanding of what human qualities were. Um, but also in doing that to expose how fragile people are. Um, that, um, you know, they are are things which can be broken um, and that sense of uh, understanding our humanity for me is really central to the work of the blueprint and in so many of the things that 
we see this isn't just about corporates but any organization we seem to have arrived at a position where we um, have lost sight of that the fragile nature of what it means to be a human being so you mentioned earlier on some of the you know the tower blocks and the um, instances of either Grenfell Tower or in the in the Lebanon. You know, Grenfell Tower was um, um, was refurbished on the basis of a of a cost proposal, um, and didn't to the way in which I think will fully come out when the um, the investigation, the inquiry looks into it. The degree to which it puts centre stage the uh, humanity of the people who were going to be housed there. Uh, and I think that kind of thinking has been absent from so much of, of corporate life. You see it perhaps most easily exemplified in um, the the way in which people are managed or classified. Are classified as human resources. Um, but the emphasis within organisation is on the resources bit. Um, so resource management, um, resourcing. Um, this is all about treating people as objects, as numbers. Um, I was reading a piece on the, on the way over here uh, in today's Financial Times, um, which talked about uh, the impact of insecure work um, on individuals. There's a, an international um, epidemiology survey which is looking, looks at health um, across different groups of people. And in this survey, they found that uh, levels of chronic stress are higher in people who are employed in insecure work than those people who are unemployed. So the very nature of the work that we're creating is undermining human life. Um, it's um, perhaps not surprising that people who are in the lowest levels of work are four times more likely to uh, suffer um, from stress-related illnesses, be that heart disease or mental um, stability. And so that, that for me is, is really brings home what the Blueprint's mission is all about, is um, through an understanding of a business's purpose in society to put people at the heart of that understanding. And what it means to be human is the first thought that we should have. And we are so far away from that at the moment. And the Giacometti exhibition is a good way of sort of reminding ourselves, you know, the fragility of what it means to be a human being. You can clearly see how your mind works, though. If you if you get a corporate leader to come and have a look around here, though, mm. how, are you, how are you then you know getting them to think like you are in terms of seeing what they're seeing in this ex exhibition and then taking that back into their business well a few years ago um i took a, a group of global chief executives who were at a conference in greece um it was a global uh, partner conference and the um the global CEO said, look, I'd, I'd really like to do some uh, serious leadership development work with the CEOs before the, the, the main conference kicks off. Can you, can you do something? And I think the expectation was we'd go and run a class and you know, maybe bring in some speakers and we'd have that in the same hotel. And it struck me that um, conducting an event, this was 2015 in Athens, um, 
not paying attention to what was going on in Athens at that time was to really under, underline the complete disconnection that leaders had from the world around them. So instead of doing that, we, um, I took the CEOs out to meet the Greek banks. We then went and met Greek pensioners who had lost their pensions, Greek students who couldn't get jobs, Greek startups who were trying to work in that environment, um, refugees who were coming into the country, um, and artists who were trying to make sense of all of this, and then brought them back together and said, so what does it mean to be a leader in this context? And I think that that contextualization of what it means to be a leader in this modern world can no longer separate uh, or endure the disconnection that's gone on, but can't separate the the whole world from what we've previously considered to be the business world. Mm. Um, so, I, and I think um, helping people to see that um, and helping to open up leaders to think in different ways is, is one of the things that we, we need to do. Um, and maybe something I'll, I'll, I'll come back to a bit later on. Sure. Well, I mean, you can clearly see that by just coming to an exhibition like this, it sparks a whole conversation about, about work because we're, we're, we're debating it now. Um, Ruth, you were nodding a, a, along there, but anything that you've seen you know, this morning that, that has inspired you, uh, you know, or, or things yeah. that you want to take to business? Yeah. I mean, I feel like Norman is saying what I think, but much more eloquently all the time, <laughs> which is just <laughs> fantastic. But um, I love this place. I really love this place. And... Um, I'm a member here, and uh, I, I think the Tate Modern is just fantastic, and the Tate Britain are just, you know, I think just walking into the building is incredibly inspiring, actually. So um, if you walk into the Turbine Hall, it's this enormous hall, and so you get this great sense of space, and then this idea that there's art all around you, and um, this building used to be a power station, mm. so it kind of conjured up conjures up for me at least a whole bunch of images and ideas about what London used to be like and where it's come from and the whole redevelopment of this area along the South Bank with all the art and culture and uh, we were talking before the show about um, the South Bank and everything that goes on down um, at the uh, Royal Festival Hall it's just amazing I used to work across the river um, and there was kind of nothing here in the 90s you'd walk over here and it was just a bit you know, you just didn't want to be here. So just that in itself is is amazing for me. And um, one of the exhibitions I just went into briefly today was, um, it's called Soul of a Nation. And it, it's, it's basically a celebration of black art um, in the US. Um, and uh, one of the first things that you see as you come up to outside, because it's, um, it's a paid exhibition, but outside they've got... Um, TV screens of various different leaders, so Martin Luther King um, and uh, Malcolm X and um, a couple of others with little bits of their speeches. Um, and, you know, obviously the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech is, is one that everyone knows, but it, it just kind of resonated with me that each of those people um, that were speaking, they had a real vision of change. Um, and then inside, um, there was there's a, another piece which is basically um, an exhibition about a gallery that was set up by a woman who was just fed up with the fact that black art wasn't getting recognised, and so set up a gallery. And uh, there's a bit of an expletive in the in the terminology that was used in her setting up, but it's basically like you know, we're not getting attention. Forget it. We'll just do it ourselves. 
And one of the things that I take inspiration from is when people just think in leaps, in shifts. And um, so, okay, we're here and, um, you know, there are all kinds of problems and issues and difficulties, but what about if we just imagine a different reality and actually, and actually think beyond where we are? Um, and so that exhibition um, just reminded me of that. And I think that's one of the things that, if, if you go back to what Norman was saying, that's the kind of shift that if you take people out of their comfort zone and out of their experience, that first of all, you can have a bit of a sort of um, almost like a mournful period where you, you realise problems and difficulties that in a way we're just trying to shut out a lot of the time. But then actually, um, if you can find the inspiration in that, you can really move forward in, in, a, in a complete shift to a different state. And I think that's really exciting. I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, it talks about some of the negative uh, things that are represented uh, by, by art, but um, art is about hope. And um, one of the things um, that's not on exhibition here, but um, if you go to Oxford Street above the door of the John Lewis um, um, branch on Oxford Street, there's a wonderful um, statue there uh, by Barbara Hepworth. Um, the uh, famous um, Yorkshire, Yorkshire sculptor. Um, and I need to get that in because I've travelled from York today. Um, <laughs> but um, she, um, the figure that um, is above the door, which most people don't realise, is a figure of a winged, uh, a winged being. And the reason that that was commissioned by the John Lewis Foundation, um, because they wanted to inspire their people. Uh, they wanted to remind people of the freedom, of the opportunity for resurgence and for aspiration that could be symbolised through art. Which shows you that some people can consciously think about the power of art yeah. um, and its importance and what life could be about. Um, and I think that's, um, you know, if you go, go, I would reckon, you know, we're in London today, but go and look at the Hepworth Gallery up in uh, Wakefield, <laughs> uh, where you can see a replica of that close up. Right. Um, which just shows you what the potential of art is to inspire people as well as to remind people about who we are. Um, one of the key messages, obviously, we want to get across from this podcast, which we are clearly doing at the moment, is getting out of the office to, to places like this and, and not being tied to your, your desk. Uh, Ruth, you, you touched on uh, nature earlier um, as something that, that you like to get out and about. Do you want to sort of expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I said when I cycled across Africa that... Um, being in big open natural spaces is something that I just find really re-energizing. Um, and, um, you know, actually there's nature all around us, even when we're in, this, in the city. You know, in London, the Thames is part of nature. You know, you walk along the South Bank here and it's part of nature. There are parks and, you know, so on. And, uh, but I think, so for some people like me, I go out into nature and I find, I, I just find that something happens and I get re-energized. Um, but I also think it's really interesting to look at um, the way that we can learn from nature as a designer, I suppose, or the way that um, uh, nature creates things. And um, I think Norman actually is a lot more knowledgeable about this than me, but there's quite a lot going on at the moment around uh, biomimicry and looking at patterns in nature and how can you bring that into uh, the way that organisations um, are set up. Um, 
and, and I just think that's, that's quite fascinating. We tend to build things in pyramids, and actually that's not the way that nature builds things. And um, the other thing that I think is interesting is about being reflective, taking time to slow down. Um, and that's something that I've really tried to build into my life and actually something that um, cycling and I've also done uh, ultra running and now I do yoga is, is doing physical things that kind of take you out of your mind and into your body and the space that that creates for reflection um, and the need to kind of slow down and, and I think it's just really interesting if you think about nature that nature goes through cycles of bursts of energy in the spring and summer and then a kind of closing down period and a, a period of hibernation and um, and regathering, I suppose, of energy and then coming up again. And we tend to live in this frenetic world where we never really stop. And certainly when I was in the corporate world, it was like work really hard. And then I'd go on a holiday and I'd literally just like collapse for a, a while. And then eventually I'd re-energize and I'd go back to work and do it all over again. Yeah, and that that's not a, you know, I think Joe was talking about natural ways to live. It's not that's not a natural way to be yeah. living. Well, Joe, let's, let's bring you back in on this. Yeah, I wanted to say something about nature, being a geologist. <laughs> um, geologists, including myself, love being in nature. We love climbing mountains. Um, just really love to reconnect with nature. So it was just a really interesting contrast. I mean, you're talking about being in the corporate world and then the huge difference there is when you go on holiday and experience a natural environment like a beach or a mountain. And that was always a really difficult contrast for me because I was being a geologist exploiting the earth, really. Um, and then I mean, that felt really disconnected from, from my love of the earth as a geologist from a kind of a caring for the earth point of view. So it's very hard to live with these two sides of yourself exploiting the earth but also kind of loving and appreciating the earth whenever I went on holiday and just sat on the beach it would I would always think about um how difficult those two things were to reconcile Norman yeah I think this uh, theme of renewal and regeneration I mean, my latest uh, project is about organization renewal um, thinking about the way in which organisations are part of much bigger ecosystems and the extent to which, uh, to Joe's point, they are either extracting value from that or whether they are contributing as part of a living system. Um, and, I th and I think that the business of reflecting and discerning which actions businesses should be taking um, because... Ultimately, if you, all you do is extract value and don't contribute to putting something back into the system, then the system ultimately um, folds in on itself. And learning that from nature, so how, how do we build businesses which have an un, uh, enduring capacity for renewal, um, both as a business and within society, I think is one of the biggest challenges that senior executives now face. I completely agree with that, Norman. I think that the um, one of the things that um, can help, I think, is, a is, is the reflection that any business always produces two things. It produces the goods and the services that the business produces, but it also produces people because people go in in the morning and they come out in the evening. And businesses are either generative of humanity or they're, 
or the degenerative of humanity. And actually for business leaders to think about the responsibility that they have. Funnily enough, actually, Ruth, I met uh, one of the senior partners from PwC who reflected, he said, you know, one of the real things we do is we produce people because we take in a thousand a year bright young graduates. And actually our, one of the main purposes we serve in society is training, developing, giving these people a good, really good professional grounding and then they go off. We can't possibly cope with them all through their careers. But that idea that all business is really part of the purpose of a business is to see itself as a place of human development and human flourishing rather than that being seen to be a kind of cost or uh, instrumental means of doing something else. This is a really, in a way, very simple but very profound shift of understanding of what makes organisations really work. Uh, and I think it's very exciting to see lots and lots of organisations, and particularly with younger people coming into work, who just look up and they just say, well, I just don't want to be part of a system that doesn't seem to be human-centred. And can't we think in a more creative way about how we relate to one another and tell a story about what we're really trying to do together that we can't do by ourselves, which really helps society and helps all of us. So for me, there's something very exciting about this moment in time where after the financial crisis, after a lot of things have gone wrong, people are saying, do you know what? It doesn't have to be like this and let's try and change it together. Joe, you were nodding along there. Yeah, I love that idea of a business's ability to develop uh, human beings and produce human beings. And I think business is very comfortable with developing our technical capabilities and, you know, uh, allowing me to become a fantastic geologist. It was an amazing opportunity, but how you can develop on a more, uh, with your softer skills, I suppose, is more challenging. I mean, it's something that doesn't sit as comfortably. And I go back to something Norman said about the fragility of people. You know, people are emotional um, beings, and sometimes it feels like business finds that a bit inconvenient and it gets in the way of getting things done. (laughs) So sometimes you can get told you're too emotional or. You know, and it, you just feel like you have to squash elements of yourself uh, in order to survive. Mm. So, yeah, I like the idea of being developed as a whole person. Um, and yeah. Okay, I want to change the, uh, the topic slightly because we've talked about art and we've uh, talked about travel and uh, then out into nature. Um, I want to come on to the topic of music, um, you know, whether or not we can in, uh, draw inspiration uh, from music, uh, whether or not that's listening to it or even playing it. And I know, uh, Charles, for example, you play the piano, do you not? I do, yeah. Um, I started playing at the age of nine and did it quite seriously in my early 20s. And... Um, absolutely love it and I love listening to music as well um, and I've tried within the limits of, of kind of working life um, to to keep the piano going because I find it an amazing source of pleasure and of, and of personal regeneration because the fact that it involves both your hands and you've got to look at the music you're playing it's totally totally absorbing and it takes your whole brain it takes you, you can't be doing anything else when you're doing it uh, and I'm lucky enough to have a group that I often play with. We do chamber music together. And then listen, having to listen really hard to somebody else and to study and to see what comes out that you can create together that you can't create by yourself. And the the depth of pleasure that comes from being part of creating something that's there, that st- starts from silence and it ends in silence. And it's it's got a... A beauty to it if you get it right um, uh, and and a way of completely engaging which is utterly for me unlike anything else and what's strange about it but it relates a bit to what um, uh, what Ruth was saying about going across Africa is that it's not that I think about work when I'm doing it but it does change the way you think later and there's unconscious things that go on and it's about how the brain 
I think it is a source of renewal and regeneration and enormous uh, and joy. It's mm. joy for me. It's there's something about hope and joy that you get from from certainly from listening. You know, if, if I mean, you know, when I'm asked about what I think is most important in the world and how, if I believe in anything ultimate, I say yes, and the reason is just listen to Bach. <laughs> Yeah, a bit pumping through the office. <laughs> <laughs> no, that'd be a bit much. But, but for me, there is something extraordinary about that amazing music. Yeah, sure. Ruth? Well, just what Charles was think, uh, speaking, I was thinking um, it's really interesting. Uh, and I can't remember where I read or heard this, but the point of music is not to get to the end. The point of music is being in the music. It's the playing of the music. It's the enjoyment of the piece. And when um, composers set out to compose a piece of music it's not about uh you know here's the story and this is the end point the end point's not actually important it's important how it ends and where it ends and the transition to silence again but the beauty is in the everything that happens in between and we're so focused in the modern world on getting somewhere getting to somewhere and I certainly came from an environment where it was deadline-driven all the time. And uh, we, we're kind of constantly on this mission to get to a place to do something. And um, just briefly going back to travel, but one of the reasons that I really love travel and the cycling journey, and uh, I've taken very long train journeys and other things, is actually just being on the journey, being in the thing that we're doing. And I think that often in, in business we lose that. And I think actually music is probably the you know, it's almost like the best way to convey that, that thing about the end point isn't the important part. It's mm-hmm. the being in the whole thing that actually that matters. Yeah, my, uh, just listening to that, my sense of what it is to be human um, comes to the fore. So Charles losing himself in the music um, is perhaps when he feels at his most human. Um, and the contrast between that and the task-driven, you know, objective-focused individuals that we become often when we're in work seems to be a very long way away from that um, epitome of um, humanity. And I, again, bringing this back to the blueprint, I think that's what the blueprint is asking people to think about. What is it that helps us create or creates environments in which we can be our most human? Um, we're talking a lot here about what we can do right now, obviously going out and, or listening to music. What, what about what's gone before? So any inspiration that you can draw from history at all? Norman, let's, let's start with you on this one. Well, um, unfortunately, I, you know, I'm a bit of a history thing. I, I, I love history and what it can teach us. Um, so we're on the water here. Um, and another, um, and in, in the, you know, the, the sort of capital city of the world, some people would say, the most vibrant city on the planet. Um, another city which in its day had a, a similar um, positioning was uh, Venice in the 12th century. Um, and that was the, the center of uh, the European known world at that point in time. It was the trading capital. Um, and it had a fascinating system which ensured its success. Um, and that system uh, was called um, La Comenda. So basically the... Um, the nobles and the rich people used to sponsor the young entrepreneurs, the, the boat captains, and would pay for, their, pay for their voyages to go and discover new silks and spices from around the world. But when they got back, they would split the proceeds 50-50. 
And so that then allowed people from the, you know, if you like, um, the guys who worked on the ships to progress to the most senior levels of Venetian society. And they created a hugely inclusive um, and vibrant economy on, on the back of that, which for 200 years um, dominated, um, dominated the world. Um, and we still talk about Marco Polo and the adventures and, and so on. Um, they, they then decided to, um, to close it down. They uh, decided that there were too many people. The elbow room at the top, around the top table was getting a bit, um, a bit too crushed. And they, um, they closed it. They called it La Serata. And they stopped sponsoring voyages. And they stopped allowing people to uh, progress up the ladder of uh, society. Um, and what's interesting that, that the point at which they did that in the 14th century, 15th century, start, uh, marked the end of the Venetian uh, period of dominance. So that when uh, Christopher Columbus went looking for money uh, to sponsor his voyage uh, to the New World, uh, the other way around the, around the planet, uh, he went to the Venetians and said, will you, will you sponsor me to go and do this? And they said no. So he ended up going to the Spanish, uh, Spanish court and they sponsored the ship and between the Spaniards and the, the British, um, they, um, they brought the riches of the new world back. None of that went to the Venetians. Um, and by the 19th century, Venice was sinking into the sea. Um, now there's all kinds of lessons in that um, around the kind of society that you need, the inclusivity that you need, the, the power of social mobility and the kind of vibrancy that that creates. And you look at London, I'm looking out across the city, uh, the other view from one of these windows, and we know that uh, the level of mobility that's possible in this country has gone backwards year on year, um, and it's at one of its worst levels for the past 20 years. And one has to ask oneself, what is it that we're creating? And I think the lessons from the Venetians and other people uh, shine a light on um, whether we are running things in a sustainable manner. I think we could. Uh, I, th I think it's safe to say we could be talking for uh, you know, a lot of time on each of the different topics that I've asked you about today. Um, I'm, I'm conscious of the time that we have been chatting. I just want to sum up with, um, you know, I guess what the key message is that this is all about. You know, the more experiences you have, the more you can draw on unusual insights and, and apply new ways of, of thinking to challenges in your business, but obviously in your personal life too. If you could sort of give me sort of one key message to sum up, uh, you know, from everything we'd be discussing, you know, what would that be? Norman, let's, let's start with you on that one again. Um, I, I liked the uh, earlier conversation about nature. Um, nature thrives because it's going through a constant process of renewal. I think for human beings to thrive, they also need to be going through a process of um, reflection, of regeneration, of renewal. Um, and the question is, where do you get the raw materials from uh, to feed that within you? Um, and I don't believe that that's possible just by staying in the same environments. I think bringing other things in uh, provides the raw materials from which and through which renewal is possible. Ruth? There's, there's something about just constantly broadening your perspective, however it is that you do that. And, then, and I think there's also something about... Um, connecting into just feeling your energy where's your where's your energy with things I think I think we don't kind of connect with ourselves often and uh, so as you're broadening out then where's your energy coming from it might be kind of negative energy sometimes but can you direct that into something that is positive and gain inspiration 
take it somewhere. Excellent. Uh, Joe, your final thoughts on it? Well, it's hard to sum everything up, isn't it? There's so much that we've touched on. Um, but I think a really important thing for me is around becoming the kind of best person you can be. Sounds a bit strange, but I love this idea of, you know, being in an environment which will support you to become what you can be and doing something that is really true to what you believe in. Um, so I suppose the acknowledgement that places that we work feel really unnatural and that contrast that you feel between, you know, when you feel like you're being your true self and when you're at work, if that's a really big distance than just trying to take control of that and do something about it. Very good. Uh, Charles, I gave you the first word of the podcast. You can have the last. What's your thoughts on it? Well, I'd like to go back to the, the fact that we're in this building because Tate Modern represents an amazing thought of creativity about how you take something and nobody unless you know, thought that there was that potential within this building to become what it's become. Um, and there's something about tapping into creativity and our desire to innovate and the potential of the future. And it seems to me that touching all the conversations we've had are ways in which we can access for one another and for ourselves ways of becoming, as Joe was saying, better versions of ourselves or realising together potential change for the good of society. And I think business has to be part of that. And it's about a complete reimagination of what's possible, which this building represents so brilliantly. Very good. Um, well, well, this has certainly been a, uh, an inspiring chat. Um, Charles, if, if listeners want to find out more information about a blueprint for better business, where's the best place that they can go? They can go to our website, www.blueprintforbusiness.org, uh, or contact us. We'll be delighted to talk to you. Uh, we're there for businesses uh, and seeking to grow and move which we'd love everybody to get involved with. Excellent. Uh, Ruth Dobson, Norman Pickavance, Joe Alexander and Charles Wickey, thanks for joining the show. That's it for this episode, but don't forget you can listen to all previous shows at our website at csuitepodcast.com. Plus you can subscribe to the series on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn and uh, now on Stitcher as well. Just search for the C-Suite Podcast on any of those. But if you're on iTunes, please do give us a positive rating and review as that uh, helps us up the business charts. You can also join the discussion around the show on our Facebook and Twitter groups, uh, which a link from the website and if you want to get involved in the series in any way you can contact me on twitter using at russ goldsmith or just via the contact form on the website thanks for listening and goodbye